Amen. If you're ready, come on, look at your neighbors. Say, let's go. Amen. Welcome, welcome, welcome to church. We're going to the book of John. If you are new with us, we've been studying throughout the scriptures and various subjects that the Lord's been giving me. And now we're going back to the word verse by verse. Somebody say, break it down, pastor. Come on, amen. If this is your first time here, welcome, welcome. You'll know nothing different than me going verse by verse. But those of you who have been around for a while, you know what it's like around here. We just sometimes change it up. There are some preachers that do it the same way every way. I need things to be fresh. And what's unique about this season going verse by verse is that each service will have a different book of the Bible going through it. So first service is John. Second service, by God's grace, is Galatians. So if you want to uh, study the other book of the, the service you're not in, get the app, go to Facebook, YouTube, all of those wonderful things. The book of John, go there to chapter 1, verse 1 with me. You've probably heard this in this church uh, many times, this portion of Scripture. We will preach it again and enjoy it as if you have never heard it. Amen. You're going to hear it again as if you had never heard it. And one of the reasons why it's brought up so much in this church is because as a pastor, as a preaching person, you have favorites. And you hate to say it because you want to love the Bible equally, all of it's the Word of God, but you eventually begin to develop a pattern, a, a habit, and there are passages that are go-to, places that you can go to and you feel comfortable, you feel like they're, on, like they're your pajamas. Anybody got comfortable pajamas? Like if it's a rainy day like it was a little bit yesterday, you just kind of put them on a little early. You feel comfortable. Okay, first, uh, the first chapter of John is, is my safe zone. This is where I feel the most comfortable. And at the same time, it's the most challenging. I don't even think I understand it a thimbleful worth of the ocean of knowledge that is here. And I've been looking at this passage over 20 years, and yet every time, whether it's just a quick reference that I'll be making in another sermon or in my own private devotions, just looking at a verse, or even like in the, the back preparing for today, it blesses me and encourages me in new ways. Are you ready for this book right here? Are you ready for this passage? Because what I want us to do as we go through the book of John is understand that the apostle who is writing this is wanting us to know from Jump Street, from the first verse, who he knows Jesus is. Jesus is not just a good man. I was watching a show yesterday with my daughters, and there was a Buddhist monk on there slash a warrior, you know, and those always look cool, like in the movies. They always make the Christians look like an idiot, but the Buddhist warrior monk looks cool. How many know what I'm talking about? Like they have like, like everything going for them, but the Christian never does. I'm just like, when can we ever see like the Christian warrior, you know, like in one of those movies? But anyways, I was talking to my daughter, and I was like explaining Buddhist to them. And I said, Buddha, if you just really want to know what he was about, he was just about like common sense, uh, you know, knowledge that's elementary. You know, like uh, one of the things that was said in this show is a person was going through great pain, great loss, and the, uh, the one warrior came to the other warrior and said, you know, Buddha said to a person that had great loss, go around the village and get um, a mustard seed from everyone who has not experienced a loss. So go see if you can find someone in your village that has not experienced a loss and then get a mustard seed. But yet this person could not get a mustard seed because everybody's experienced loss. Everybody go, oh, deep. <laughs> it's like a fortune cookie. Everybody's experienced loss. Yeah, no doing. Okay, good. 
glad you figured it out, Buddha. Okay. You know, but that's like deep for Buddhism. And then Buddhism tells you to go inward and discover yourself. And what do you find down there? You find you're a mess without Jesus. And so you're trying to clean yourself while you are broken in yourself. And so Buddhism can only take you so far, really, honestly. But I told my kids, I said, but that's not Jesus. Jesus is not just coming around saying, love your neighbor. I mean, he said that, and that's amazing. Jesus is not just coming around going, do unto others as you want done unto you. That's amazing. Jesus is saying, all y'all are going to hell I came down to save y'all, and how I'm going to save you is by dying for you, and then when you think it's over, I'm going to rise again, and then you're going to see me ascend to heaven. How many know that's a different story than just giving you a fortune cookie? I believe in that one. I believe in the one that says in the most loving verse we'll ever read in the book of John, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not what? perish but have everlasting life. Even in the most loving scripture of all times, it says you're going to perish unless you have Jesus. You see, Jesus is not just coming talking about the basic things of life. John is not writing this gospel to even hype up Jesus to be somewhat like a a miracle worker or a David Blaine or a Copperfield or a magician of his time. John is starting us right in verse 1 telling us that the highest level a, a creature could ever be, someone that you could ever imagine, That is where Jesus is at. Jesus is equal to the God of creation. That's what it's going to be telling us. And so when you see Jesus who has a flesh that's been created, and by that sense, he is a man, he is a creature, what John wants you to understand is this person, this human that you're looking at is in his nature equal to the God who made the entire universe. And I just don't think we can get get past that that God the Son became like us. Oftentimes people say, well, if I saw God, I would believe in him. No, you wouldn't. You would crucify him because that's what they did when they saw him the first time because he would annoy you because Jesus is not like the way you think God should be coming in the flesh. We think if Jesus were to do it the right way, that Jesus should have came down and been like Oprah, have a talk show, validate everybody's life experience. And at the end of every, every talk that Jesus had with you, he doesn't even preach, he has talks with you. At the, at the end of every one of the talks, Jesus just goes, you do you. Go be the best you. Discover yourself. Like that's what they wanted Jesus to be. Are you guys listening? But Jesus kept pointing out things that was against what they wanted. And even to the point like, like yes, the adulterous woman. This is a powerful story here. And we'll get into some of the manuscripts and why. Some versions say it's not found in other um, you know, uh, older versions, but it's more in the King James and, and things like that. We'll, we'll talk about why you have that there, but how many still believe the story of, of the adulterous woman? You're just going to trust us on that? Okay, you do some study, but I, I believe the adulterous woman happened. But how many know that after she got forgiven, that felt great. That was amazing. Nobody's stoning her. She's going home. But right Right before she does, what does Jesus say to her? Hey, go and sin no more. 
Like she was cool, like with everything up until that point. Ain't nobody going to judge me. Nobody going to judge me. I'm not getting judged. You can't judge me. You thought you were going to throw that stone at me. I'm walking out of here. And she's probably thinking to herself, man, I got another, another client in about 10 minutes. I'm good. I'm, I'm going to keep on doing this. And then Jesus says, oh, hold on. By the way, you better not sin no more. See, if you're going to listen to Jesus and try to, you know, cherry pick his messages, you're going to turn them into anything you want to be. But if you listen to Jesus in context, Jesus is a revolutionary. Jesus is a world changer. Jesus is upsetting everybody. The, 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 at that day, the Pharisees were upset that they couldn't stone somebody. Man, we wanted to stone somebody. And, and the prostitute, the adulterous woman, whatever she was doing, tricking however, she's upset because she can't go back to doing what she's doing. Unless you love Jesus, the Bible, then you're like, you're happy. I can't stone somebody. How many are happy today you're not stoning people? How many here used to be an adulterer and you're happy you're not doing that anymore? Amen. Let's be honest. Even adultery of the heart. And so when we look at the book of John, what we're looking at is oftentimes called a high Christology. We're looking at Jesus, as it were, from 30,000 feet up in the air, getting the whole understanding of him. In the other Gospels, known as the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're seeing Jesus from, from the level of everybody else, and the story is building up from his genealogy to the, to the Magi and to all of these things happening, him going to the temple and then him getting older and all of that. John doesn't do you like that. John starts right from the beginning. He wants you to have the heavenly perspective. And because of that, sometimes people have thought that maybe the gospel of John wasn't written by a disciple because if Matthew wrote it like the way he did, Luke, a follower of Paul, wrote it like he did after doing his research, Mark writing his after hanging out with Peter, he's actually Peter's secretary, so Mark's gospel is technically Peter's gospel. So some people began to say, well, maybe John came a later time, and it's not actually written by John, it's written by a community of Christians who are trying to to, in other words, subvert the Jesus Messiah uh, doctrine where Jesus is only a person, and they're trying to sub subvert Christianity into believing Jesus is God. And so this is not written by one person named John who was an eyewitness. This is actually written by a Christian community. It's written not in the time of the disciples. It's written, uh, you know, 50 years later. If we look at Jesus ascending to heaven around 30 A.D., this is written around 150 A.D. when the other Gospels were written around that time of Jesus, 40, 50, 60 A.D. Some may say the devil is a liar. That's not what the church fathers believe who were there at that time. They would have told us the truth because they tell us about other gospels that bore the names of disciples but were not really from them. The gospel of Thomas they knew had not come from Thomas. They knew that the gospel of Mary had not come from Mary. You might have heard about these in the Da Vinci Code and so forth. But what we see from the earliest Christians is that they actually believe, some of them, that John's gospel was written first and that it was the synoptic gospel Gospels, the ones backing it up to the genealogy that were coming after John to help people understand that he wasn't just God, he was also a man, he was the God-man. So it's something how scholars can flip. 
and to have different opinions. Now, I don't know, and I don't know what time it was written, but I have for sure a basis to believe it was written by John. I do believe that it was written independently of trying to impress people that he was certainly only writing by the Holy Spirit. But could it be that this gospel is our first gospel in the list of all the others? It could be. But I know for sure that God wanted us to have what John had. And this is the way I would describe it. Imagine if you and I went out to our uh, favorite you know, place on a Saturday, whether it's by the lake or to a park, and we hung out. And let's say some things happened there. I don't know, something like an accident or something good happened. Maybe somebody got married there. And all of us begin to retell our stories. There's always going to be one person in the bunch that's going to tell it different than everybody else. For example, we all might start off, most of us, might start off by saying, well, I got up in the morning, I went to the park, and then there at the park I hung out with my friends, and there, my friends, we saw this wedding or we saw this accident. There might be somebody else, because I always think there is one in every group that starts off like, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. The sky was shining bright as the sun was in the air, you know, up in the sky. How many know somebody like that? They're just artistic. They're just unique. Are you listening to somebody's just going to take you to a whole nother place? As I came into my car, I was listening to Beyonce. My heart was open to her message. And then I saw what seemed to be like an angel, but it turned out to be a bride. See, I think John is that one in the bunch. See, the disciples, for whatever timeline they're playing, uh, this is being played out, whatever timeline, when John begins to speak, I believe God uses personality. I don't believe all of a sudden John just becomes poetic. I don't believe that was abnormal. I believe if you would have been around young John, the youngest disciple of the bunch, you would have seen someone that had that artistic side. In other words, he was one of Jesus' closest disciples, and when it came to asking questions, John was so close to Jesus that the Bible says he laid his head upon his breast or his chest and could look up and ask him questions. But there's nothing homosexual about that. John was artistic. He was, he was secure in his manhood that at one moment he could lay upon Jesus' breast, talk about spiritual things, and then call down fire, or at least want to, on people who weren't receiving Jesus. Are you listening? Him and his brother were called sons of thunder. They went out and preached. The people didn't listen. John came back and said, hey, man, can we call down the fire now, Jesus? They're not listening. Let's just show them right now who's boss. John, secure in his masculinity, yet artistic, like David, a, a worshiping warrior. Or is anybody listening to me? He's a poetic gospel writer, influenced by the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit. And at the same time, I believe that God is using his personality. And John actually is the only one of the 11 that was not martyred unto death, though they tried to martyr him, but he was spared. We look into church history, we find that, that there were uh, two signs that were given to us in Mark, and we know one of them about the serpents, that you'll take up serpents, was Paul. We see that on Malta, where a serpent bites him, it does not hurt him. But we hear of another sign, the drinking of poison. And it's not until you go into church history that we hear that they tried to poison John, but it didn't work. They tried to boil John alive, but they were stopped. And so he's exiled to an island where he eventually writes Revelation. Somewhere between these martyrdom attempts and being exiled, he writes this gospel. And I can just imagine him talking to the people that have known him now as the oldest disciple. And yet he once used to be the youngest. And I can imagine him bringing everybody to himself saying, let me tell you the story of the gospel. Everybody comes around. Children are just like they are here doing their thing, a little rustling in the crowd. And then you can just hear John begin to say, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Could you imagine sitting with John as we leave that passage up, please? I don't know how far we'll get today. But could you imagine being there as he's saying those words to you? Where does your imagination go when I say in the beginning? Most of us here would understand that's referencing the book of Genesis. So the moment you hear in the beginning, now you have a reference point that everything that is happening in the book of Genesis, our Jesus is already there. He's firmly planted in eternity, not as a mere creature, but as God himself. And yet he is not there by himself, as some might think that maybe Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Jesus just comes in different shapes and forms, as other Hindus or other pagans have believed their God can shape, shift, and change names and personhood. John says very clearly, yes, the Word is there in the beginning, but he's also with somebody named God. And that word with in the Greek, prostantheon, he is face to face with God. Planted in eternity, before there was ever time, he's there and he's not alone. And then yet that we might not fall into the Arian heresy, you see the Sibelius heresy, the oneness heresy is Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. He is alone, the Unitarian person of God, lest now we fall into the other air that somehow God the Father makes a son, that the son didn't exist at some point, and now he begins to exist. We're told that he is himself God, just like the one he is facing. We're told that in every way that the God he is facing is divine, that is what he is. Yet he is not the one he is facing. And now we get into this idea that maybe there's multiple gods. Has the scriptures been flipped on us? Have we just been introduced to two gods? Are we going to be introduced to three gods? And yet as we continue on in the book of John, just in a few verses, we understand that this is coming from Jewish theology. There's only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one, Ahad in Hebrew. And so what are the Jewish listeners supposed to do with the pagans as they're hearing this? They're supposed to share their foundation of oneness. And then the pagans are supposed to share their understanding of multiplicity. And there we see the logos in the Greek, which is the word word. We see here with the Greeks understood, with the Jews understanding, coming together. There is not three gods, there is one God. But there is not one person only in God, there are three persons in God. Yet those three persons are not separate gods, they are sharing the same nature of God. And there we see the Trinity being displayed in these first few verses. How deep can you go with this? You can go as deep as your mind can let you travel. How much do you have in your mind as in bandwidth to meditate on this today? 
that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Out of all of the concepts John could have called him right here, he could have just said in the beginning was Jesus, made it simple for the reader to understand Jesus is the name given to the God-man. Before he became known as Jesus, he was always known as the Son, but to save confusion, John could have just said in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with the Father, and Jesus was God like the Father. But why does John, led by the Holy Spirit, leave out the proper names? Why does he speak in these terms of word, logos in Greek, and theos, meaning God in Greek? Why does he do that? Because he wants you to understand that the word, logic, the very sense of reasoning comes from the person of the Son. And the very one the Son is with is not just a father in an emotional, relational sense, but the Father is God in an ultimate sense. We know Him as Father, but even if we never understood the concept of Father, He would still be God all by Himself. Are you listening? And yet the Logos is equal to everything God is because He Himself is God. We see these terms being given to us by John so that our mind can go deep into them. In the beginning was the word, N-R-K-Hologos, N-R-K, R-K. We think about the word R-K, meaning the beginning, not just of what we would say is the beginning, but the beginning of all things. In other words, there was never a time when Jesus was not there. And then it says, in the beginning was the word. There was never a time the logos, the logic of the mind of the Father was not there with the Father. The Father, listen to me, has always been a father. Are you guys tracking? And to be a father, you have to have what? At least a child. And so as long as the Father has been a father, the Word has been there as the Son. And in their relationship with one another, there has been divine intimacy as well as divine intellectuality or intelligence and reasoning within the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There has been wisdom and knowledge from ages and eternity past that we are only beginning to grasp with the revelation we have now. He was with God in the beginning. He made all that we see. Everything that is here today was made by the Word of God. And we don't mean a floating Bible Word of God. We mean the person known as the Word. There is the living Word, the Logos, and then there is His written revelation that is given to us. This written revelation communicates to us thoughts and ideas because what are written words? words on a page. What do they represent? They represent more than ink, don't they? Don't they represent more than trees in which pages are gotten from or made from? The words on these pages, they are spirit and they are life and they are truth. And they are not just true on Sundays. They are not just true when we get together and we imagine things like heaven and angels and things. They are true in the sense as all the world is designed and upheld by information, this is the code of all that information. 
Think about that. From what you see with a telescope to what we discover with a microscope, the deeper and deeper we get, we see there is information. There is intelligence. Even now as we're working with AI and CGI and all of these things with computers, we are realizing it takes intelligence to make intelligence. And so when we see things that are intelligently made, we back it up to an intelligent designer. And and John is telling us that every Everything that has been made has been touched by, created by, came through by, influenced by, held together by the Logos of God, the reasoning of God. So if someone were to say to you, where is evidence for God? Show me evidence for God. You would literally say, everything, man, is evidence of God. Everything. The whole entire show, this thing we call life, your inner life, your outer life, the physical world, your thoughts, your memories, everything you've ever done in this world that you have touched and tasted with your senses is evidence that the Logos has made us. The very fact we're asking questions to reason about God is that we have reasoning. What is the referent? of our reasoning. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. So when I say a statement like the apple is red, for that to be true, their language that I have to be speaking has to be true and be a referent to colors and apples. That has to be true. And then it has to be true in a reality where there are apples and where there are colors. So the words have to have reference of meaning and then the actual items we're discovering have to have referent and meaning. Where is the foundation of our language and everything that exists that we ascribe meaning to? What is the foundation? The Bible says it's the Word of God. The Word of God is the referent for all language, for all intelligibility, for all that we speak, for all that we think, because God Himself is intelligent. God Himself is the maker. It is impossible. Somebody say impossible. It is impossible to conceive of a world that the Logos didn't make. I want to say that so clearly so that you'll never be on your heels or on the defense with an atheist and ornery one at that. Listen, it is impossible. It is impossible to imagine a world where God through the Logos did not create it. In other words, the only possibility of understanding a world and to be in a world is the one that God created through the Logos. How can you imagine a four-sided triangle? How can you imagine a married bachelor? How can you imagine a square circle? These are absurdities and impossibilities. Can you imagine such things? Of course not. There is no such thing as a four-sided triangle, a square circle, a married bachelor. And it's the same thing. How can you use reason without already having reason being given to you? So how could you reason yourself into a world where there is no reason? sin. You can't even imagine one. It's like trying to imagine nothing. You are the one imagining something. That can't be nothing. 
Now you try to clear your mind like the Buddha said as we were talking about before. Everything you see is something. The darkness of your eyes closing is something. The thoughts running through your mind is something. The tranquility you try to feel is something. It's impossible to have nothing. It's impossible to have a world other than the God, the one that was created by God through the Logos. And yet he doesn't stop there. Listen, in him was life. This life is not just what we think of when we think of like life in general. It is life in its, in its deepest sense, existence. In him was existence itself. We would call this being. Inside of him is being. Because sometimes when we talk like this, people say, well, if God made everything, who made God? See, what you don't understand is God is the essence of being. There is not another being that gives our God being. If you're looking at a well of water and we're all here thirsty, we would have to go to that well to get water. Now you might say to yourself, where does that well get water from? At some point, there is going to have to be a self-sustaining water well. Otherwise, one well has to get water from another well, from another well, from another. Where is the first well that doesn't need to be filled? In the sense of God, he is the the being that gives out being. He is what we call the ultimate cause. He is not contingent upon other causes. He is the uncaused cause. And because of him being, you can be. How you be right now, folks? Are you happy to be here? You be here right now, right? You be here you are a being. You are experiencing things. You had a start to your being. You might have an end to your being if God didn't want you to be an eternal being, but he allows you to live forever. But where did being come from? Where is the source of all being? Where do things come from? They come from God's being. All life comes from God's being. All existence comes from God's being. In the beginning, there was no being outside of God's being. The Father, Son, and who we'll learn about later in the book of John in 14, 15, and 16, the Holy Spirit, before God made other beings, before God made angels, before God made animals, before he made us as the pinnacle of his creation, he was, he is the great I am. He's not the one always trying to do something. He is the one that he is. I am that I am. We are always in motion doing something and becoming something. He is not becoming something. He is already God. And he is God all by himself. And the Bible says that through him, think about this, all things were made. He is the source of all being. This is where some, like Hindus, have tried to tap onto this revelational knowledge and said, well, if everything has come through God, then everything must be God. And that's called pantheism. Pan meaning all in the Greek, and theism meaning God. God is everything. And you might not think people believe this, but they do. When I was in India preaching the gospel there, I was talking to our waiter, and as we were engaging, I was asking him if he believes in God. He said he did. And I asked him, I said, who do you believe God is? And this is the God honest truth. He picked up a fork and he said, I think this is God. He picked up the fork and then he tapped the table and then he pointed to other things. He says, this is God. This is God. You're God. I'm God. All of this is God. 
Now, of course, that's ridiculous, but the sense that he was trying to hit on is that if everything has come from God, then that must mean everything is God, but that's not true. Things can come from God and yet not be God. Just like rays of sunshine can come from the sun, yet are not the extent of what the sun is. Does everybody get that? So we actually have a little Greek word that we put between pantheism. We put the word pan in theism, E-N. It means the same thing as I-N-N. All things have come from God or all things originated in God. That's what we believe, but not all things are God. Are you listening? Where do I get that word in or that word through? Those words come directly from this passage, that all has come through God. And so now what we see is when Paul is speaking in Acts chapter 17 to the Greek uh, philosophers, he says, you guys have this right. Remember, we were talking about this understanding that some of the things John is hitting on is speaking to their mind as well as speaking to the Jews. Paul even quoted one of their philosophers, and he said, you are right to say, in him we live and move and have our being. Everybody say, I get my being from God. See, in him, somebody say, in him. It's the same idea of through him. It originates from him, all things. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. So could we now adopt any kind of principle that has our Jesus being made, any kind of religion? Mormons have a God making a God called Jesus. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses have have that same idea that Jesus is a secondary God, that he's a made God. Does that come from this context? No, according to this context, Jesus is the God who makes everything. So if there, is every, if there is anything that has been made, it goes onto a side called made things. Jesus does not go on that side called made things. He goes on the side that's called maker of things. Are you guys listening to me? If you just made a line and you drew a line in the sand and said, we're going to discover who Jesus is, put everything that's been made on this side. Where is Jesus at? Jesus is left on this side, the one that makes everything. And yet he's not the Father. We're going to talk about that hopefully a little bit today and further as we go through this series. But the next thing that we see that I love is that that life, that existence that John had wasn't just given to mankind as it was given to everything else. That the life that John is talking about, that Jesus had rather, was given as light to all mankind. Some may say light. Go with me now to the book of Psalms. Go to Psalm chapter 36, verse 9. Not only does Jesus bring forth life in all existence, but Jesus brings forth light through our life. This is now what separates us from the animal kingdom. This is now what makes us unique in our existence of being. The psalm is speaking here. For with you is the fountain of what? With you is the fountain of life in your Light, we see, come on, in your light, we see light. I don't know what angels have, but I know I'm above angels in the created order. Are you listening? They didn't get a second chance. I get a second chance, and when I call them to come in the name of Jesus, they listen. But all I can say is this. The Bible speaks about humanity as the pinnacle of God's creation. And when I read this from a psalmist, there has to be something here that distinguishes us even from angelic beings. 
We are next to God in understanding things beyond any other creature that has ever been made. And how do we know that mankind is lifted up so high by its creator? Is that when the Son, the Logos, the Word, came to redeem, did he take on the nature of an angel to redeem angels? No, did he take on the nature of an animal to redeem animals? He takes on the nature of man of humanity, the pinnacle of his creation. In other words, imagining a car dealership, the owner of that car dealership can drive any car he wants. He doesn't pick the Pano. He doesn't pick the station wagon. He drives the Ferrari home every night. Are you listening? Jesus made everything. He could have came as any being that he wanted, but when he came as a being, he came as a human being because they were made in a unique way. The Bible says that with Jesus, this is who we're talking about. And if you just scroll up a little bit, notice this here in chapter 36, verse 1, or just go to verse 5. Just go to verse 5, please. Your love, Lord, you see that in all caps, L-O-R-D. That word Lord, when it's in all caps, is the divine name of God. It means Yahweh or Jehovah. So who we're talking about is the one God of Israel says, Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the sky. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. How many are getting excited when you read this? Your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. He's talking about the God of Israel, Yahweh, and yet we learn in John chapter 1 that that's who Jesus is. So when we hear that in you is the fountain of life, when we look at verse 9, in you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. Who do you think he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus the person of Yahweh that we have seen, the person of Yahweh that has appeared to Abraham, and that light gives us light. I want you to think about what you have right now in your life as light of God. Have you ever experienced in life the light of affection, care and concern, love? Have you? Are you up today? In your life, have you ever experienced the light of affection. Have you been cared for? Have you cared for others? That is from the fountain of God to you in a unique way that no other creature in all of the universe, both in heavens and earth, has ever experienced. Just that. I could list off questions to the point where you and I would get bored of answering. Have you ever held something in your hand and made something with that, whether it was food into a meal, a piece of paper into art, an instrument into sound and music. Have you ever taken a board and built it into something, a piece of iron and designed something? That is the life of God giving you light upon light. No other creature in all of eternity has done that. Angels don't build cars, you do. Angels don't cook meals, you do. Angels don't put their feet upon the grass and then dig a ditch to make a house in a basement. You do that. In the fountain of God's life is light. 
I know angels can make noise. I know they can talk. They can sing. Like I said, there are some things that they do that are similar to us. But we are at the pinnacle. We are at the pinnacle of what can be done. You can create something from your mind. You can close your eyes and design a spaceship to land on the moon. You can close your eyes and paint something that no one has ever seen before. How deep does this go? As I said before, this goes as deep as your mind can travel. In you, O oh God, is the fountain of life, and by your light we see light. The very fact that we're up today in this point of view through our body, seeing everything animate before us speaks to the creative power of God. And yet we are not just bystanders in this video game called life. We are procreating with the creator. Anybody here like procreation? Any mamas and daddies up in this place? That's called procreation. And you might say, well, he's given that to animals. Yes, but I just saw yesterday on a YouTube video an alligator eat its young. You are given a mind to see light in life like no other creature has ever seen. Have you ever looked at your children and seen the image of God, not only as in all that we have talked about, but the image of God displayed in your image coming to them? Sometimes that image scares us when we see it in our children. Where did you get that attitude from? They live with you. Where else do you think they got it from? Especially when they're toddlers. Grandma and grandpa ain't teaching it to them. But we are given the ability to not only pass as animals do the traits of our DNA, we can pass to them our knowledge and our understanding and our art and our music and our inventions and our knowledge beyond what any creature can do. Who is man that God is mindful of us? Like why does he care about us so it must be that this was the plan all along, even despite our failures and mistakes, that he wanted to show us his grandiose nature. He wanted to show us light in the midst of darkness and life in the midst of death. He wanted to show us love in the midst of pain and suffering. He wanted to show us reason and logic in the midst of insanity. He wanted to be our Savior when we needed to be saved. John takes us back, if we can go there, to the beginning so that we can understand that the Logos is not like anything we've ever heard. It has the Hebrew thought and foundation, but we're going beyond their thought and foundation now. And it may even resemble some of the pagan ideas, but it's greater than any pagan could ever understand. We see here the knowledge of God transcending all cultures, all philosophies. We see that which was once hidden and uh, concealed in the Old Testament now being revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Why do we believe the things that we believe now as Christians? It's not from the law of Moses alone. It's because someone greater than the law of Moses has come and revealed to us the fullness of grace and truth. And then in verse 5, I can just imagine John speaking this to people who are suffering 
people who are hurting. The Christians at this time, if we take the earliest date of the writing, are around 60, 70 AD. If we push it to the latest time when John would have been alive, around 90 AD, we know that at this point that the persecution has transitioned from being Jewish-based, as you read mostly in the book of Acts, the Jewish people hating on Christianity. But now we see they have been hated on by Rome and dispelled. And now at around 90 AD, it's coming directly from Rome. Directed towards the Christians. Whatever time John is writing, whether it's the early time of persecution or towards the the height of persecution of Rome, I could just imagine him speaking this to people who need to know, how does this play out, John? Because you said you guys saw him ascend to heaven and that he would be back. And it's been at least 30 years and he's not back yet. And if the temple had been destroyed, those Christians are saying, if Rome can destroy temples, how much more can they destroy us? They're putting us on stakes, lighting us with oil, calling us Roman candles. John, how are we going to make it through this kind of scenario? How are we going to survive? How will this message be passed on to the next generation if they hunt us down, rape our children, burn our homes? How will this work in the long run, John? I can imagine him thinking about this. And then John writes, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's speaking to them from that simple truth, a proverb that might have been said by a Buddhist, might have been said by somebody with half a brain to know if you light a match, darkness flees. But he says it now under the inspiration of God that the light is Jesus, the word of God, and they cannot put it out. It's not just the light of the sun can't be put out by the black space of, of night. It's not just a candle being brought out by the darkness of a room. No, candles are stronger than the darkness of the room. The sun is greater than the darkness of space. He is saying the person that I've just been telling you about is shining. And darkness tries to snuff it out, but he's still shining. They tried to crucify him and make it dark, but it's still shining. They tried to hunt us down and make us go dark, but he's still shining in us. And even when everything around you looks dark, he's still shining. I can only imagine how many Christians throughout the last 2,000 years of church history have held on to such a verse like that. Remembering uh, and reminiscent of Psalm 23. You know, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Here we see in the book of John that Jesus is that good shepherd. We're going to have that be revealed to us. But I love it even here that John goes even deeper than this valley of the shadow of death. He brings it right down to light versus darkness. That everything you see could be broke down into now what is God's plan. God's plan to bring life. God's plan to bring light. All of that can be seen as coming through Jesus Christ and all of that darkness from the enemy. And you're supposed to realize at this point that there is no competition. Just like the sun has no debate with the darkness, the sun is on whether the darkness likes it or not. Just like when you flip that light switch, darkness doesn't have a debate with light in that dark room, in that basement. The light wins every single time. John is wanting us to know the darkness can never win. 
It doesn't matter what happens in world governments. It doesn't happen. Doesn't matter what happens on the world stage. It doesn't matter what happens when you see all the evil of this world and there is so much evil that is dark and wicked. The light keeps shining. The light is shining today in the hearts of those who have been kidnapped, those in the sex trade industry. God is keeping them alive and being merciful to them, speaking to them through their conscience. God is speaking to those right now that are suffering in North Korea or in Afghanistan. God is reaching out to them. Wherever there is a human being, God's light is within them, reaching them through the gospel of Jesus Christ, either through dreams or vision or creation itself. There is no place where the light of God has not reached or is reaching now. Why do we go and preach? We go and preach to testify about that light, to clarify that light so that they're not confused by their own flesh or deceived by wicked people. When we look to this passage, I see hope beyond anything that I could give you right now, beyond any type of political party can give you right now. I see God speaking to us in this generation that he's been here from the beginning, that he's holding all things together because he's the creator of all things, and that through his life we have light, and that we are to take advantage of this life and light all the days of our life and not get discouraged when darkness comes. Because even as we read further in the book of John, there is coming a day when the light will shine and there will be no more darkness. There will be no more shadow because Jesus Christ will be with us. Are you listening? Amen. Let's keep going. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist, not the uh, Apostle John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. Now, as a witness, does he make the light truer? Like the more witnesses we have about Jesus, the truer the light becomes? No, truth is truth whether we testify to it or not. But all the honor to be a testimony unto Jesus Christ. John was sent by God to be a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. I wonder how many people in your world today need you to be a witness to the light. Let's just think about it. Will they see the light as clearly without you? I don't think so. That's why God uses us. I do believe they can see light within themselves, and I don't mean that we all in some way are saved in universalism, but I believe the light of the conscience in God's imago Dei, the image of God stamped upon our hearts, is there for them to explore and to understand God, to seek him that he may be found. But I do not believe that he gives his clearest revelation that way. I believe the clearest revelation of the light of God, which brings it into focus, is light bearers like ourselves. Those of us who have now accepted the light have the light of God within us, and we show them the light. How many of your friends have you left in darkness out of convenience because you didn't want to offend them with the light? How many know those in darkness, like in a movie theater, they don't want the light. They don't want your phone on right? How many know once you wake up, you don't want the light? You need to take some time. How many have dimmers in their bathroom? Come on, dim it up for me now. But how many know we still need light? You can't live in darkness. You can't live in a movie theater. You can't live with your pajamas on every day, getting the boogies out your eyes. Are you listening? At some point, you got to open up the shades, 
At some point, you've got to see the world for what it is. You've got to come out of that dark room. And I'm just wondering here today, how many has God called in this church to be a witness and a testimony to the light? How many here will go out into this world and shine the light of Jesus Christ? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. John the Baptist was sent to baptize and to preach repentance as one of the last prophets of the Old Testament, and yet he was still a witness and a testimony to the light. And now I love John continues on. He says, the true light, somebody say the true light. Thank you that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is why I can't be a Calvinist, though I have friends that are Calvinists. I'm more of an Arminian, and that doesn't mean I come from Armenia. It means I follow Jacob Arminius and his way of understanding salvation. It's a doctrine called soteriology, and we are divided, as most Christians are, sadly, into different camps. And there's the Calvinist camp that believes in God's fatalism and sovereignty. He chooses who will be saved and who will not be and so if you're chosen to be saved, there's nothing you can do because he's going to pull and drag you in with irresistible grace. And if he's chosen you to be lost, as John Calvin, the founder of that movement, said, you are doomed from the womb. Doesn't sound like the God of John, does it? But we still believe they serve our God, even though they misunderstand him. But this is one of the reasons why I cannot be one, because here we see, as Jacob Arminius and others taught, that the light of God is given to how many ones? How many ones? Say the word every. I'm helping you as you help me. He gives light to how many ones? Everyone. So according to the gospel of John, as we will learn even clearer as we go on, especially in a place like John 3.16, that God so loved the world, we see that the light is given to everyone. Not just a few chosen. And this is where now we complement the scripture with other ones coming from the synoptics where it says Jesus spoke, many are called but few are what? Chosen. See, this is where we believe that the light comes to everyone, that the call of salvation is going out to everyone. There will be no lost villager on judgment day going, I didn't know about you, so stop worrying about them. Are you listening? Well, what about those who have never heard, Pastor? Well, first of all, you're not one of those. You're here and now and then number two the righteous loving kind judge will do what is right he says he's given them light they're in everyone aren't they are the aborigines people in everyone are the Aztec people in everyone were the Goths and the Vikings in everyone were those in the Chinese dynasties in everyone the Bible says the true light gives light to how many ones everyone and now he's coming into the world. So let God deal with the Aztecs. Let God deal with the Mayans. Let God deal with the Vikings. Let God deal with those who followed, uh, you know, the different gods of those, uh, the different uh, leaders of those people. Because I believe they would have rejected those false gods. And every missionary movement we go to, we see that there were mission, uh, the, where the missionaries go, you can find it in the book, Eternity in Their Hearts, that wherever the missionaries go, whether it's into China or into Africa, Latin America, or into Europe, they find a group of people rejecting the God of those lands and believing in a one God that created them to obey him and to live like him. And most of them, not all, but most of them believed he had a son that would reveal himself to them. Isn't that amazing? 
That when you read the book Eternity in Their Hearts, where it talks about these missionaries showing up to these different people groups, many of them say, we believed in one God. We rejected the God of our ancestors, that the tree was God, that the sun was God. We believed in one, one God, creator of heaven and earth, that is made of spirit, not made of the things we see. And we believed that that God was going to send his son to us. And some of them even performed sacrifices unto that God. Even in the story of Acts 17, when you see Paul at Mars Hill, he says, you have a God that you call the unknown God. There's a whole story that I could get into. But these people got to the point where they said, our gods aren't working. Let's just fall upon our own ignorance and the mercy of a God that we don't know and say, whatever God we don't know, that's probably the greatest of all of these God. Have mercy on us. And they started sacrificing to an unknown God. And that was set up there just so Paul could come and say, hey, the unknown God you guys have been sacrificing to and don't know about, I'm going to reveal him to you right now. The light that gives light to everyone, he's coming into the world. And he came. Verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Do you see? He veiled himself. He came in flesh like us, looking like us. It would be like as if you lived in a world of everybody dressing up as mascots. You would look like just all the other mascots, but there could be something different about you. You could have a knowledge that all those other mascots don't have, but on the outside, we all just look like those things. When God came in the flesh, he looked just like us, but his spiritual nature had been there from the very beginning. He himself was our creator, and even though, look at verse 10, come on, somebody, even though the world was made through him, he made the whole thing. The world did not recognize him. Talk about humility. Talk about humility. He could have squashed us at any moment, and yet for the sake of redemption, he becomes our perfect sacrifice. He came to that which was his own. This is the Jewish people. When we look at the Bible in the history of the, of the people of God, we see that God wanted a people to be representative of himself. And it's not that these people were better than any other people. Most of us in this church don't trace our ancestry to those people. But they are not better than our people. And For example, they're not better than the Italian people where, where I come from or the Polish people or the European people or the indigenous people of Latin America or of Asia or of Southeast Asia. No, what we see is that God chose a people, picked one, and said, now I'm going to show you who I am. It's not about you. It's about me. And I'll be faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob even when they're not. I will be faithful to Moses even when he wants to quit. I will be faithful to Israel as a nation even though they want a king and don't want me anymore. He said, I will be faithful to them even though they kill my prophets. And so when Jesus came, now he's the fullness of that promise. He says, I'm coming to my own. Imagine being a Jewish person at this time. You remember back in history, you used to have a temple and a place that was made out of gold, representative of God's heavenly throne, the Temple of Solomon. But you heard that it was pillaged as your people were raped and brought into captivity. And over a certain amount of time, 70 years, you were able to rebuild a temple. But when your ancestors had saw the first one, saw that second one, they cried and said, it's nothing like what we used to have. But it will do. 
Now imagine for the next 400 years you're tossed back and forth by world empires versus world empires. At one time your people are ruled by Babylon. Then at another time they're ruled by Persia and the Medes. And at another time ruled by Greece. And now you're ruled by Rome. Flaming homosexuals, violent criminals are in power. Pedophiles are in the military. Your very own leaders are continually pimped and done wrong in front of everybody and there's no justice. They can come and take over the Romans. They can take over your house and stay as long as they want. If they want your children, they can take them with them as sex slaves. And yet for their own peace and not you having an uprising, they let you be a little bit safe. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, as good as it was, is what you had. And now imagine Jesus showing up to you. And Jesus begins to say, God has kept his word. God has kept his word. Destroy this temple in three days and I will rebuild it. Now you understand why in the book of John they wanted to stone him just for saying that. You mean this thing that we now have is all that we got left? This temple, we know it's not as good as Solomon's, but you're now threatening us by saying, tear it down. This is the only thing we have from our ancestors. And you're saying in three days you're going to build it. Took our ancestors years and blood, sweat, and tears to do this. And then John inserts there, this he spoke of his body. Why? Because he's going to teach them that it was never about a temple. It was never about the dirt of Israel. It was never about just lineage and genealogies. It was about a God who created humanity to indwell them and have a relationship with them. And it was going to start with the Jews and then go to the Gentiles until all the world has a chance to be reconciled to God. Could you imagine hearing that message? That would have to seem like the most strangest yet most beautiful message you have ever heard. You mean it's part of your will the temple is destroyed? Yes, because now you're becoming the temple. You mean it's part of your will that we get persecuted and get scattered across the known world? Yes, because you're going to bring the gospel to nations you know not of. You won't even recognize their language. Yet to as many as those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So he comes to his own first, but he says to everybody, do you want to believe in me? I'm not just the God of the Jews. I'm your God. Everything I've made, everything that's made has been made by me. So he says, if you receive me, if you're Hindu, you receive me, I will receive you. If you're from Asia, I will receive you. If you're from this part of the world, I will receive you. Why? Because he's saying, I'm your maker. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Everyone here has the right by Jesus Christ to become a child of God. Vinny, would you come please? Children born not of natural descent. So it doesn't matter now if you're just from Israel. Remember when he speaks to John, uh, excuse me, Nicodemus in John chapter 3? He says to Nicodemus, hey, man, you've got to be born again too. Nicodemus, you don't get into the kingdom of God just because you were born of natural descent, a Jew. It's still important to future promises. That's what we believe as Christ taught. But he is saying to the moment of salvation and to what it means to be in a relationship with God, he's saying it doesn't matter now. Who's your daddy? And how back you trace your lineage? 
What matters now is you receive the Son of God. Receive Him. And you become a child of God. Not born of natural descent. Not born of human decision. Not born of the husband's will. Hey, baby, let's get it on. Not born of, of, of what the daddy wants to do, but born of God. So now it doesn't matter who your earthly father was or what lineage you came from or what your backstory is. You have a right that no one can take from you. You have an inheritance waiting for you. In other words, humanity as a whole is the prodigal son. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he's waiting at the door for us, saying, as many who, has come, who come and receive me, I will give them the right to become children of God. Verse 14, how many are happy today to be children of God? Come on. We'll end here at verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Did the Word stop being God? No, the Word just took on flesh. If you put on a mascot uniform, do you stop being hu a human when you put on the furry outfit? Did God stop being God when He took on flesh? No, He just took it on the Bible says, as an earth suit. And he made his dwelling among us. Do you want to know what that word dwelling means? Tabernacled. He pitched his tent next to us. I can't tell you how many times tears have come down my face when I've understood this. Have you ever felt alone? Young people to old people. You ever felt like nobody gets you? Nobody understands you? I want you to think about this. Jesus comes right next to you in the middle of your pain, in the middle of your loneliness. And he starts pitching a tent. He says, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. My tent is next to you. He's not too busy for you. He's not too out of touch or out of reach from you. He pitches it right next to you. The Bible says we have seen him. Can you imagine this? This is John now putting himself in the context here. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. He just opened up to you the revelation that we already were assuming because we have read it before. He now tells you who the Word is. He's the Son. He tells you who the Word is facing. He's the Father. And we have seen Him. We have seen the Son. We have beheld Him. That's why when John starts off his first epistle to the churches that he was pastoring, he says, listen, we have touched Him. We have seen Him. We have heard Him. We have beheld Him. The testimonies that we have been given by the church, we should take serious that God walked among us, God the Son, and He showed us the Father. And now today, because of the book of John, as we'll get into it, He said, it's good that I go. Why? Why is it good, Jesus? We can't go to the Father. You've already told us you're the only way to the Father, so we want you to stay here. Why is it good that you go? He says, it's good that I go because I'll send another. 
another who is just like me, another who is just like the Father, and He will be inside of each and every one of you. The Spirit of truth, He will not speak on His own behalf, but He will only speak what He hears me say. The Gospel of John in these first 14 verses will never become old to those searching to know who our God is or for those who want to experience Him. I find myself oftentimes somewhere between John and Peter's personality. I find myself that artistic young person who wants to lay on the teacher's breast and ask him questions. And then at the same time, I personally find myself kind of blunt, stumbling through some things that need a bit of tact in life. I find myself like that. I think all of us can relate to that in some way. But what I love about John in these first 14 verses is that he captures my heart both ways. He captures every part of that artistic side, every part of that imagination that I have, everything that I want or need to go deep, but then everything that I need to practically live out my life to become a better Joe is tucked in right there. Because the logic of God is not just philosophical, it's practical. God tabernacling with us is not just that day you're meditating. It's when you go to work tomorrow and you really need what God has for you to get through that day. It is both spiritual and natural. It is both practical and it is both um, med meditational. And everything that we see here, I pray that your imagination will not be limited by the idols of this world. Because nothing about John looks like idols or sounds like idols. No one else can compare to who our Jesus is. And I would ask that you would see him today in his glory. That we would search after his grace and truth in his word and understand it and apply it and give it to the world. Are you ready to do that? Can we stand up and give it up for Jesus today? God in the flesh, amen. Band and altar workers, would you come please? Lord, we thank you that you sent us your Son so that we may have light and life. Thank you, Jesus, for creating us, for making us, and for giving us your plan and purpose. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for dwelling in us and today applying all that the Father and the Son have for us. With everybody's head bowed and eyes closed, if you don't yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's okay to skip ahead. Go to John 3.16. Believe in Jesus even as we learned in chapter 1, and you will receive eternal life. God did that because he loved you. If you receive him, you will have the right to be a child of God. In a few moments, we'll be dismissing. When we dismiss, if you want to accept Christ and need help praying to your Father in the name of Jesus, these prayer workers will be here. And if there is anybody here today that has anything that they want to lift up to God with others, because as we'll learn in John, that there is only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus. Our prayer workers would love to pray with you, to call on the name of Jesus with you, to encourage you. But before we go, before we go, can we just thank the Father for sending the Son here for the next few moments? Thank Jesus for coming. Father, we thank you for sending our Savior to us. We thank you for revealing to us the Word. We thank you for giving us light and life. 
Come on, now begin to thank Jesus for coming. Jesus, we thank you for dying on a cross. We thank you for revealing yourself, showing us what it means to be alive, giving us something greater than than Buddha could ever give us.